You're listening to the Harborside Church Podcast. To connect with us online, go to www.harborside.org. We hope you enjoy this message. I would say that I was actually quite a slow learner when it came, came to God's justice, love, and compassion. And I say I'm a slow learner because um, when I was a child, uh, my, the first 10 years of my life, I grew up in the Philippines. So I grew up in particularly a place called Cebu City. And the place, does anyone know Cebu City? By the way, some of you? Yeah. I grew up in a place in Cebu City, downtown, and it actually was a red light district. And so when I say I'm a slow learner, I say that because not only did I grow up there, but I was also a Christian there. I say I'm a slow learner because when I, even though I was a follower of Jesus and a child of God's love or God's family of love, my thoughts about my community was not love. Now, I remember my, my mom saying, don't go, don't go to that, that corner over there or don't play in that area. Uh, but there was four of us boys and we still did all those things anyway. Um, but it didn't click to me that this was a red light district. It wasn't until I came back as a teenager that I realized, oh, wait, this is a red light district. And I remember thinking to myself, I remember saying this as a teenager, as a 13-year-old. I remember saying, who are these dirty people dirtying up my childhood home? So it's a bit of a confession here. My first reaction wasn't, oh, I love these people. My first reaction was, who are these dirty people dirtying up my childhood home? Now, my mom did take us to church. My dad didn't go to church, but my mom did. There's six of us kids. She would drag us all the way to church so that we could hear God's good news. So what was going on here? My perspective is this, uh, my reflection is this, that I reckon as a, as a person who grew up in Christianity or in church, I internalized a lot of the message and I kept it for myself. This is what I heard. God loves me. God has a plan for me. He wants me to be with him in heaven. So I grabbed that blanket of love, that gospel of love, put it around myself And if I was generous, maybe I'll extend it beyond myself to my family members. If I was feeling a little extra generous, maybe I'll give it to my church, but maybe just some of my church members, right? But that gospel of love was only for me and people that I can reach. Does that make sense? And so anyone beyond that, I just labeled them to justify my thoughts and my action. I just said, dirty people, dirtying up my childhood home, they don't deserve God's love. Now, the passage that was read for us, it talks about heaven and hell, and I grew up listening to that, that it's about heaven and hell. Um, But I actually think it's much deeper than that. I actually think that Jesus was trying to point to something. My perspective is that he was pointing to something, not just rhythms, but something even deeper than that. Now, if it's okay, I'm going to get you to discuss it for just a couple of minutes, or maybe just a minute, um, what you think love is. And I'll give you two options. Do you think love, you know, love is a choice? Or do you think love is a response? All right, so have a think about that. Do you think love is a choice? Or do you think love is a response? Now, are we allowed to discuss things here, Dave? Yep. All right, so turn to the person next to you. (laughs) Turn to the person next to you and discuss, do you think love is a choice or response? Be careful if you talk to your partner, because you might have a fight about this. So, 
All right. Any fights? <laughs> All right. Now we'll, uh, we'll put hands up, okay? Who thinks love is a choice? Oh, okay. More than half. Majority. Well, why would you just yell it out? Why do you think love is a choice? We're not predisposed to it. So sometimes you have to actually make a willful choice to do it. Right, good. Who thinks love is a response? Hands up. Okay, a little bit more. Response, yeah? Well, what's, what's, well, who do you, why do you think love is a response? Oh, you're reading my notes? Yeah. So gave it away. Well, I, yeah, you're right. I think it, it is both. There, there are times where Love is a choice. You make willful choices um, to love somebody. Um, but there are times as well that it should be a response. As a response to God's love loving us, we respond accordingly, right? But I think there is a dynamic between the two, that you do make choices, and those choices create a rhythm that create responses. But then those responses create a rhythm that shapes your choices. And it becomes this rhythm of both. And I think what Jesus was doing was Sorry, should I say that again? Uh, What Jesus was doing was he was pulling this apart and kind of exposing it to the people who were listening to him. That there are big um, implications on the rhythms that you have created. And that's what I want to talk about today, if that's all right. So let me pray. Father, I, I thank you, Lord, for who you are. Thank you, Lord, for loving us. And thank you, Lord, that you call us into our identity of love. That is your primary concern, that we can step into this identity and truly, Lord, be transformed by your love, that we can make choices, but also that it eventually becomes naturally to us as we respond, whatever is thrown at us in this world. And we know, Lord, how to go beyond just our walls and, and lines that we create. Guide us, Father. Amen. And so to understand, all right, we, we need to understand why is Jesus telling this parable at this particular time? And we need to understand what was going on beforehand because it just seems a little bit random. So before Luke 16, we have Luke 15. And at Luke 15, verses 1 and 2, what we hear there is that the religious leaders were questioning Jesus' rhythms. They say to Jesus, Jesus, why do you spend or why do you welcome why do you welcome sinners? Why do you welcome tax collectors? In other places in the gospel, they, they say, Jesus, why do you spend time eating, drinking with them? Are you a sinner and a glutton? Are you a drunkard and a glutton? Is that who you are? Why do you welcome? Jesus responds. He responds with three parables, straight up. The lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son. So why are his rhythms welcoming to sinners? Well, because the father is like this, um, this uh, shepherd who looks for, leaves the 99 and looks for that one lost sheep and then brings it over his shoulders, gets back, and rejoices. The father is like that woman who loses this valuable coin, takes the whole night looking for it, sweeps the whole uh, place just to find that lost coin. And when she finds it, she invites her neighbors and rejoices. The father is like this father of two sons, and then the son who leaves comes back, and then the father is the one looking out beyond just his house, beyond looking for the son to return, and then he rejoices. 
when the sun returns. So why are Jesus' rhythms like this? Well, because he has a posture to welcome people so that he can rejoice for the lost to come home. Does that make sense? His rhythms point to his heart that just wants to welcome the lost. But Jesus doesn't stop there. In Luke 16, he then turns it around and he questions the Pharisees' rhythms. And as he questions their rhythms and their love for money particularly, he says, you can't serve both God and the God of money. He says to them, I want to question, actually beyond the rhythms, I want to question your heart. And he says this, You are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. He goes beyond just the rhythms, and he goes to the core of it, the heart of it all. And then he tells the parable. Does that make sense? And so in the parable, what do we have? We have two main characters. Yes, Abraham is there, but we have two main characters. We have the rich man, right? What does he look like? What was he wearing? Purple linen, fine clothes, purple, probably either he was royalty or he saw himself as royalty. And what was the rich man? Oh, sorry, what was Lazarus? He was a beggar. He had sores all over his body. In fact, the only sense of compassion and comfort he has are the dogs licking his sores. He would have been separate or an outcast from society. He wouldn't be able to participate in the faith community gatherings of the time. So we have these two characters. Now, do you see the rich man kicking Lazarus out of his house in the story? Do we see that? Do we see him beating up Lazarus to, to have his condition the way he is now uh, in the story? No, we don't. Because the issue that Jesus is pointing to is not the sin of commission, but the sin of omission, of not doing what in your rhythms as followers of God should be doing. And your sins of emission in your heart is what's causing rhythms of unlove. Does that make sense? And so let me, um, if, if I may, and I know this can be quite confronting, I, I have to say God confronted me with this first. But I want to point to you two things that I think Jesus points us to. Firstly, Jesus points us to selective seeing. Let me read it for you. In Luke 16, verses 20, <clears throat> 24, we see the rich man saying something, and we get an insight into his perspective. In verse 24, so he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me. Send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. So right there we see that he says, Father Abraham, can you send Lazarus to me? So he saw Lazarus as a slave or a servant or someone lower caste than him. And secondly, we know because he calls him Lazarus, we know that, he, that the rich man knew that he existed. Right? Like he can't say, oh, he was by my gate. Oh, I didn't know. I'm sorry. He knew him by name. So he, knew, he could see him physically, but he really couldn't see him. This is the power of what happens when you label people. Not only that, being the richest man there, 
You know, um, when I think of fences and gates, I think of, like, our Western society has fences and gates. But back in those days, and in a lot of places in the world today, not everyone has a fence, not everyone has a gate. Um, you, would, you would usually just tie down your, your animals, right? But if there were more of you in the village, more families, then you would pull your money together. And as you pull your money together, then you would pay for a fence to go around your village, and right at the uh, front, you would have an opening. You would see who goes in, goes out. You, you make sure the foxes and the predators stay out, and your animals stay in. Where was Lazarus again? By the gate. Now, being the richest man, he just paid for this entire thing. And being the richest man, he would have been part of the eldership, like the eldership structure at that time of that village. And so the eldership would discuss, come together, discuss the well-being, the shalom of the uh, community. So if there was a great harvest, then they would talk about that, how to do that well. If there was a drought or a famine, they would come together and talk about that again. Guess where they had their eldership meetings? By the gate. And as they discussed the well-being of the community, there lied Lazarus, starving and dying. He might as well have been a rope tied around that post. They couldn't see him. This is the power of selective seeing and labeling. As I mentioned to you before, I, I grew up in Cebu City. Um, just to give you a little bit of a better picture, um, the, the street that I lived in was the main street, and we lived in a two-story house. We weren't, we weren't rich. We weren't extremely poor either. We were just somewhere in the lower bracket. Um, and when I, I, I remember coming back, um, there was a certain time of the night that you could really see what was going on. You see, right in front of my house, there would be like a bench, um, and there would be women sitting there. Seven or eight women would just be sitting, um, waiting for customers to arrive. At the end of that bench, there would be, you know, the facilitator, the pimp of, the, of that bench. But every 10 or 15 meters, there would be another bench. And another 10, 15 meters, there would be another bench. Does that make sense? Now, a certain time of the night, around 10 p.m. and onwards, a car, usually cars would come, potential customers, they would come, and the signal is they would put up their headlights. As they put up their headlights, um, their the, the high beam, that's the signal, the, the pimp starts to get in front of the car and would motion for the women to come one at a time. One at a time, the women would come, they would show themselves, do a twirl, a dance, and then sit down. Meanwhile, you have the driver, the potential customers in the car, or by himself, usually a he, and he would just then go, no, not that one, next one, not that one, next one, not that one, next one. As if there were items in a vending machine. That is the power of what happens when you label somebody. You don't see the person anymore. You don't see the person made in the image of God anymore. What you do see is the label that you put on them, an item in a vending machine. Now, here's the other dynamic to that. As you label others, you also label yourself. If you say they're an item in a vending machine, you're saying I'm a consumer of that. When you say someone is out, I am in. Someone is not deserving of love, I am. So what is Jesus' accusation? You do those things, people, religious leaders, so that you can look in the mirror and you can justify what's going on in your heart. 
You do the labeling so that it justifies your actions. And as you do that, you create a chasm between your relationships that you make. Does that make sense? So what's the good news? Well, the good news is that Jesus sees those labels and just wants to rip it right out. He calls it out on him. He says, leave this life of sin. But he says, this is not who you are. This is who you are, the way I see you. Does that make sense? In Nepal, I was talking to a friend of mine who is also Nepalese, who works with us at Baptist World Aid, but also used to work in Nepal. Uh, himself, he, wasn't, he didn't come from a rich background as well. He was from a poor background, and he worked with the poorest of the poor. And one of the things that I said to him was, look, we do a lot of great work overseas, but I want to understand how, how this story is perpetuated, how this poverty cycle is perpetuated. And he goes to me, I'll tell you one. He told me many things, but I'll, t- I'll tell you one thing. He says, there is this creation story that we have, and it's ingrained in who we are. And it's from the creation story of Brahma God, that is their creator God, Brahma God. Um, I'll, I'll put it up. And he talks about how, and you will know this by your last name, right? So if... You, you say your last name, you, we will know, or people will know what class you're in. So the Brahma, Brahma God creates the Brahmins class, or the caste, created from the head. So for them, a reserved priesthood, academics, that's for them. It's reserved for them, right? That's their label. The Kshatriyas are the rulers, administrators, and warriors because the strength is from the shoulder. So they're created from Brahma God's shoulder. The Vashyas are from the waist, so they're the artisans, tradesmen, farmers, and merchants. And from the feet are the Shudras. So manual labor is for them. That's their label. But there's also a fifth one, the Dalits, created from the waist. Right? They're the untouchables. And because of that, their jobs are waste management, street cleaners. I've heard of stories where if people are walking in the street, they would, they themselves would walk in the gutter because that's where they belong. That's what they deserve. This is the story that's perpetuated. It's illegal, technically, but thousands of years have ingrained it into their story. Label upon label upon label. As I was sharing this with, with a health professional who comes from this background, she also said to me, yeah, you know, Mavs, it's ridiculous. Like, I have friends who are Brahmin and Dalit doctors. And they're friends, but when the Dalit doctors come into the house and then they leave, everyone, then they would clean the whole house. Because with them is this label that they're dirty. It is ingrained within the story. It is a bad story, but we can within the story. And so what does Jesus do? What does his good news, do? Uh, what does it do? What does that good story do? It breaks that. He wants to rip those labels right off. Now, I reckon Jesus was also saying, grace was also offered to the religious leaders who have labeled themselves that they were great and they were in. That's why there were religious leaders who became followers of Jesus. And so grace was offered to both, to anybody who labeled themselves. This is the good news that Jesus sees. Who is named in this story? Lazarus. What's the rich man's name? Jesus says he personally names Lazarus. He sees Lazarus. He sees you. 
he sees all of us. He knows the numbers of hair in your head. That is how much he sees. That is the great news, the good news that breaks stories like this. And secondly and finally, Jesus addresses their selective hearing. He addresses their selective seeing, but he addresses their selective hearing. So, verse 27, the rich man says, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus. There he goes again. Send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Father Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. Right? No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, Father Abraham, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead, resurrects from the dead. It's amazing, isn't it? Now, why, why is this mic going like this? Um, why is this important? The word for listen or hear is very important in the Hebrew culture, right? It is the word shema. I'm sure Andrew uh, will be able to speak about this if you want. But it's this important word because not only is it hear or listen, it is focus, attention. It's from Deuteronomy 6. That's why a lot of the Shema prayers are based around that. Deuteronomy 6 verse 4 is the greatest commandment. Hear Israel. Shema Israel. The Lord is God. The Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Right? The second is like it, Jesus says. Love your neighbor. So at the core of it, at the core of a lot of Moses' laws, or instruction is a better word, is love. Right? Love. And so what are the prophets about? Well, they're about a call back to that covenant of love. Uh, they, they would say this in their prayers. And so if the, the rich man and the brothers were truly listening and hearing, they would know the Shema. They would know this instruction of love. In Deuteronomy uh, 15, it says, There need be no poor people among you, because in the, Lord, in the land the Lord your God is giving you, there will be plenty. You will be prosperous. And if you exist in love, in following the instructions of love, there will be no poor. And so the prophets call back. For example, Isaiah, it says, It is you who have ruined my vineyard. The plunder from the poor is in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people and grinding the faces of the poor? And just in case you think I'm making it up, there's a lot more, by the way. There is instruction after instruction, love after prophetic voice of love after love. And if you are not hearing, then you have figured out a way to condition the way you hear. You've been saying it since you were a child. You say it every day. Now, here's the confronting part that I remember confronted me. That if you, can, if you can condition your ear so much so, so much selective hearing, that you don't, that you create these rhythms and practices in your lives, that you don't hear the cries of the poor. If you do it so well that even the voice of the resurrected one, you won't hear. The voice of our Savior, the voice of our Lord, the voice of our king, the voice of our friend. Can you imagine that? You can condition the way you hear so much so that you don't hear the voice of Jesus himself. I don't know about you, that's, that's too confronting for me. 
So with the Dalit, we work with uh, the Dalit in, um, in Nepal. Uh, this area that we particularly work in um, is 90% um, Terai Dalit. Part of the issue is the, par there's par the parents don't have um, literacy, so they're illiterate. And so they don't send their kids. Why? Because that's their story. This is their place. This is their lot in society. We'll stick to this, right? Um, and because of that, the kids um, don't get sent to school as well. Uh, churches there, because you can't um, register as a church officially, um, they register as welfare organizations. That was the, that's the closest thing they can find <laughs> to who they are and their values. Oh, we're going to be a welfare organization. So churches register as that. And so we partner with those churches. And in this place, they started a school 10 years ago. Now, this is what I, I, I want to draw attention to. There is power to, true, to truly listening. There's absolute power in it. We don't go to Nepal or to the 20 other countries we work in in the world and say, this is what you guys need, boom. Here's a bunch of money, boom. We want to get to those places and we want to ask, what is it that you need? Because there is power in truly listening. Now, I'm halfway through a master's in counseling, and one of the things that I really learned, like if I learned anything, is that there is power in listening to somebody. If you truly listen, because there's power when you open up your ears or your heart, and if this person who's down and out feels like you are a safe person, they can communicate to you what's going on in their heart, voicing that out lifts their capacity. In this exchange of listening, and being able to articulate what's going on in your heart, you are a these people are able to highlight what's going on. Therefore, lift the capacity of this is the issue, this is the problem we need to address. And so the way we do things um, as Baptist World Day is we hear. And so when we heard them, these are the issues that they're highlighting. Education is core to the issue. So 10 years ago, we established a school and established self-help groups and child clubs. Now, these child clubs, when we heard what they think are the highest needs, they said, you know, one of the areas is child marriage. A lot of them are being married at, you know, from 10 all the way to 18. In some areas, it's 30% are being ma married off that young. Some areas are 50% being married off as a kid. They think it's a way out of poverty. And so the, ch the children are saying, can you, and, ch and youth are saying, can you help us speak into this? Can you help us? And so part of what we do is we establish these child clubs to have a conversation with the local government. And now in this place, you have child safe committees from these churches, from these welfare organizations, connecting with the local community, government, local government community, and they're able to have funds and budgeting and, and policies in place to stop child marriages. Does that make sense? That's the power of truly listening. That's why for me, even with Jesus, it is amazing that Jesus does a whole bunch of things and he should know a bunch of things, but one of the things that he says to a blind man is, what is it that you need? The blind man is probably like, uh, you can't see what I need? But Jesus still asks. He could just go, I know what you need, boom. I know what you need, boom. He says, what is it that you need? He wants to have this conversation. He wants to, you to voice it out. That is, 
our Jesus who listens. That is the good news, is that Jesus hears and that Jesus sees. Let me close off um, with one final story. <laughs> um, one of the things that I do to try to, um, to try to establish a rhythm in my family, because you know, I felt like I was a bit, of a, a bit of a slow learner when it came to it, is to create these rhythms, these big ones, um, there's day, daily ones, there's weekly ones, but there's these big ones that I want to do in my family. I have three kids, like I said. Um, one of the things that I wanted to do was before they enter into schooling, you know, 13 or plus, 13 plus years of their lives, um, being schooled in their careers and who they should be and how much money they can make, I wanted to make sure we start off with this big kind of experience together, like a rites of passage. Um, so I want to do that when they're five, before they enter kindergarten. I've done all, th- all my three kids now, um, but I remember the first one, uh, the eldest. Um, I took him in 2015. We-, we went together as a team. We went to Philippines. Um, I wanted to show him where I grew up. Um, I wanted to show him different places that we supported. Um, and I did so, you know, as appropriate as you can get with a f- five-year-old, right? Um, but I took him to the place where I, I grew up, not-, not during 10 p.m. and onwards. Um, <laughs> But I took him there. I took him to the houses that were there, the slum communities. I remember having uh, coffee with him. Oh, he didn't have coffee, but we were together with a family. And it was in the next village to us was um, a cemetery community. So they didn't have places to stay. So it's a cemetery, and they just built a community on it. Um, And then so here I am with my son looking at the tombstone that's next to us, going, are we just going to pretend this is not here? Uh, But we would have that coffee, right? And I would take him to those places. I would take him to the churches and the brothers and sisters who are faithful in serving. Um, anyway, it was three weeks uh, that we did that for. And then at the end of it, uh, the team came together, including my son. And then we said to uh, the facilitator, was saying, all right, guys, you need to summarize your experience, like in a paragraph, so that when you get back home, you're able to share what happened. So I, I said, oh, maybe my son can do this. Um, so I said, uh, Micah, Micah is his name. I go, Micah, come here. I said, uh, baby, do you want to think about a sentence? And I was thinking, oh, a sentence is too long. So oh, maybe you can think of a word. Or maybe draw it. But think of a word or draw a picture that captures the last two, three weeks for you. Something that you can help kind of share with whoever asks you. And then he goes, okay, Dad. I didn't think he would do it, but I left him to it. 10, 15 minutes later, I get a tug on my shirt, um, and I go, yeah, baby, what is it? And then he goes to me, Dad, I have my word. And then I was like, oh, what did he, what did he write? Like, trauma or, <laughs> not that he could spell that, but <laughs> I need counseling, Dad. Uh, it stinks here. It's hot. Um, anyway, I was like, oh, man, what word did he write, you know? Um, and this is the word he wrote. Can you see it? It says love. I mean, I bawled my eyes out when I saw it. Um, but, and you know what? That, that is a big anchor point or anchor story that I can point back to. But I know there's still week-to-week, day-to-day lessons that he needs to learn. He's 10 now. He thinks he's a teenager. Um, you know, you just got to work with that. But I remember thinking, oh, so what he saw, even though we were in that cemetery community, 
What he saw with the workers that are around, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, what he saw was love. Or the houses that we helped rebuild during Typhoon Haiyan just like smashed this village and no help was going there. What he saw wasn't like the, the, the houses that were being built. He saw love. And so my encouragement for us is that sometimes we think it's so hard to shift our rhythms from the culture around us. But whether you like it or not, you and your children are being discipled by something. And our churches, our discipleship has to be countercultural to the negative things that are happening in the world, right? But we, if, if a five-year-old can get it, then we can get it. We can shift our rhythms. We can shift the way we make choices and the way we respond with the things that we have. Does that make sense? So can I pray for you? Is that okay? Now what I'm going to do is I am going to pray for our eyes and our ears. And you don't have to participate. But if you feel like you want, you feel like God is kind of confronting you with the way you hear or the way you see, then just put your hands on that, on your eyes or your ears. Now, if you feel like he's confronting you with both, then just go like this, right? Uh, for some of you, maybe you don't feel like, you know, Mars is talking about this love, 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 this transformative love. Like, I, I, I don't even know what that's like. I haven't even felt that. I haven't even experienced that. And so maybe um, just put your hands on your hearts, and I'll, I'll, and, and I'll pray for that. But for some of you, you feel like, I get this already. I'm on board. I just need a direction then maybe just put out your hands like this. Again, you can participate if you want. You don't have to. Um, But put out your hands, and I'll pray for God's direction in your life. Is that okay? Let's pray. Father, I just pray, Lord, for our eyes. I pray, Lord, for the way we see. I pray, Lord, that you will not limit the way we see to just the boundaries that we created around us. That you will extend it beyond us. (laughs) That you will extend it beyond even just the reaches of, our, of the way our heart sees. Give us your eyes, Father, in the way you see. Transform us, to transform our eyes, Lord, in the way we do this. I just pray also, Lord, for our ears and for those of us who feel like, you know, we've just created all this noise around us or voices around our ears so that it justifies our actions. I pray, Father, that you will give us your ears in the way you hear and they hear the cries of the poor. Yes, sometimes it hurts more to allow that into our hearts. But help us, Lord, to have that courage to hear the cries of the poor beyond, again, the lines that we create. I pray, Lord, for those of us um, who haven't maybe experienced this transformative love that Jesus speaks about or that this church is speaking about or the way we sing about this love. I just pray, Holy Spirit, that you will pour out your transformative love into their hearts right now. We have faith and believe that you are here. And we have faith to believe when you say that you are a good father who wants to give good things to his children. And so I pray, Lord, for the Father's love into people's hearts right now.